This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me is a guy that knows that you never go against the family, no matter whose family it is. He is the captain. Okay, I'm reloading. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Today we are drinking Green Diamonds by Other Half Brewing in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Green Diamonds is an imperial IPA brewed with golden promise malt and lots of Australian galaxy hops. Shine bright like a diamond. Garage grade four out of five bottle caps. Green Diamonds was brought to us by some of our special shiny diamonds in the True Crime Garage Army. First up we have Beauty and the Brie from Mm -hmm. Chandler, Arizona. Next, we go to Green Bay, Wisconsin, and say thanks to BK. BK says, love the show, and I love how Nick doesn't seem to miss a beat, even when the captain goes on a rant. And oh, yeah, I love the captain's rants, too. Next, we have Anthony. Yo, Anthony, from Bronxville, New York. Yo, Anthony. We also have Traveling Hillary, who says she's always listening while traveling. Right now, she's listening to us in Angola. Safe travels, Hillary. That's Mm -hmm. actually Hillary Clinton there, Captain. I don't know if you know, but she's a big, big fan. Let's go close to home and say thanks to Mackenzie from Columbus, Ohio. And last but not least, thank you to Ryan in Covington, Kentucky. Ryan says, you guys kick ass. TCG is the best podcast out there. And if you'd like to buy a round for the show, you can do so at truecrimegarage.com. And like always, we like your team. And for all you beer drinkers out there, if you want to follow me, you can do so on Untapped. That's an app, people. Check me out at True Crime Garage. And for all social media, you can follow us Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff at True Crime Garage. All right, that's enough of the business, Captain. Everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer, and let's talk some true crime. This is True Crime Garage, and this is the case of Joseph Colombo. Roger, as funerals for notorious individuals go, this was extremely modest. With a service held in the section of Brooklyn where Joe Colombo was regarded by many as an outstanding citizen and family man. There were only three flower-filled cards. The casket didn't look to be overly expensive. And no major recognizable organized crime figures came to pay their last respects 
the dapper Don who headed the family, once bossed by the late Joe Profacci, the olive oil king. Well, there were a great number of politicians at the rally at which Colombo was shot, including at least one congressman, at least one member of the state legislature. I didn't see any of those people today. Some 250 mourners attended the service in the half-empty church from which cameras were bought. FBI agents and plainclothes police were present when Colombo's wife, four sons and one daughter, as well as his parents, arrived. Well, I met him in 49 at the waterfront. I worked with him on the extra labor. And I think he was a hell of a nice guy. Colombo died Monday at age 54. He'd been virtually paralyzed and in a semi-coma since he was shot down at an Italian-American Civil Rights League rally at Columbus Circle in 1971. Well, he was a family man that... Uh... When I was a lot younger, I was about 10 years old, my father used to come home sometimes with turkeys and uh, Mr. Colombo had given them to him. Robert Violanti, with Stacy Moskowitz the night she was killed by David Berkowitz, and who was left almost blinded by the so-called Son of Sam, didn't know Columbo, but came to the church today with a friend who did. Well, then I had a lot of respect for the man, and uh, he was doing the things for the Italian people, and he was good for our own kind. The mass of resurrection was conducted by Father Louis Giganti, former city councilman from East Harlem. He spotted me after the service, and as the funeral entourage was passing the home of Colombo's sister, on the way to the cemetery. Can you tell us, summarize what you said at the service? Yeah, I just called Joe Colombo uh, a martyr for the Italian-American cause. A martyr for the Italian-American cause. Last night at a Newburgh, New York hospital, almost seven years after he was shot down in Columbus Circle. It's believed that his shooting was arranged by Crazy Joe Gallo, who himself, a year later, was ventilated by gunfire that proved his mortality. More on the Colombo story. Joe Colombo regarded himself as a good family man, period. And he used to hoot at allegations that he was involved in hijacking, loan sharking, policy and bookmaking, among other various enterprises. The short, stocky, balding, dapper Don was a native of Brooklyn, and his last home there was his private house in the Dyker Beach section, from which the Columbos moved about two years after he was cut down in the prime of life at the age of 54. It happened on a June day in 1971. This is where it happened. Thousands of people were already at the rally. Many more were on their way. Many politicians were up on the stands. Suddenly, there was a series of shots, and Colombo was hit at least three times. A moment later, his assailant was grabbed and pummeled and then shot, killed instantly by Colombo followers. Colombo was regarded as really being on his way up in 1963 when Carlo Gambino, the boss of bosses, and who died a natural death, named him to take over the family which had been run by Joe Profacci. After the olive oil king died, also of natural causes. Colombo reportedly ran this real estate business where nobody would speak with me today. Outside in the gutter, a husky young man advised me, quote, get the hell out of here and leave the dead rest in peace if you know what's good for you if you know what's good for you. Jerome Johnson, the man who shot Colombo, was believed by police to be a hired gun who got the contract from the Gallo gang. Joe Colombo detested the word mafia and he once said, I don't know what they're talking about when they talk about the mafia. I do have a family. A martyr for the Italian-American cause. Who was Joe Colombo? 
Joe Colombo was a father. He was the alleged boss of the Colombo crime family and the founder of the Italian-American Civil Rights League. And in 1971, Joe Colombo was gunned down among a crowd of thousands in one of the most highly publicized shootings in New York City's history. I'll take you through the scene here a bit before we get to our guest this week. This is the summer of 1971 in New York City, and the Italian-American Civil Rights League is putting on a rally, or let's say a gathering, rather. This is the second of such gatherings, and they call it Unity Day. It's a day for the people and to bring everyone together as a community. But this is not a small gathering. No, thousands of people were present. The FBI sent every field agent from their New York City offices to the rally. NYPD sent 1,500 uniformed police officers there for crowd control. Mm -hmm. They also sent a few hundred higher-ranking officers as well, most likely to oversee the patrolmen on duty that day. And this is basically a rally. The unity rally is basically Joe Colombo was really pushing the issue of affirmative action. And when we think of affirmative action, we think of um, you know African-American affirmative action. But he was really pushing Italian. Yes. And so this is something that nowadays, 2016, we're going, well, this was an issue. This was a, this was a big issue in the 60s and then in the early 70s. Yeah. And so we're talking about 17 or 1800 police officers there. We're talking about a bunch of FBI uh, agents from the NYC field offices. Um, So there is going to be a very large, big police presence was going to be on tap that day. Now it doesn't take a wise guy to figure out that the FBI is not, they're not there for crowd control. No pun intended. Yeah, of course not. The, the FBI, they don't mess around with crowd control. Mm -hmm. No, they are there because some might call this a mafia event. There is going to be mafia presence there that day as well. And the FBI, well, they are going to go there to photograph document. And of course, eavesdrop on these mob members. Mm-hmm. Now, Joe Colombo, you could consider him the host of this event, the guest of honor, the headliner, whatever you want to call it. Right, the main speaker. But Unity Unity Day existed because of Joe Colombo. He mm-hmm. was the one everyone was there to see and hear. He was their leader. And I have to point out, you know, we all we all know the FBI does not like the mob, but more importantly, it was no real secret that J Edgar Hoover a number one FBI, well, he really did not like Joe Colombo. And I'll let our guest Don Capria get into that a little bit later. But back to Unity Day. Shortly before the event could kick off, Joe Colombo is standing inside a press barricade. Keep in mind, Joe is practically surrounded by Italian-American Civil Rights League members, Colombo mob members, family members, as well as NYPD patrolmen. Now, there's about 15 to 20 NYPD, just to be clear, right around Joe Colombo. It is at this point that Joe is gunned down. The shooter is Jerome Johnson, who is posing as a cameraman with fake press credentials. Jerome Johnson is tackled by police, he's handcuffed, and then someone in the crowd shoots Johnson. Johnson dies in handcuffs, and Joe Colombo somehow survives the attack, but he is comatose. Yeah, and we believe that these are people that worked for Joe Colombo, you know, his supporters. Somebody was like, oh, no, they shot Joe, so now nah, we kill this guy. They re- Yeah, the thought is that they may have retaliated. Now, we are all familiar with the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, but let's take a minute to well, introduce I mean, how, the— how familiar are we? Well, we're, you know, had we're him, well read. Had him to brunch uh, <laughs> one day many years ago. He was in the garage sipping on a, a nice cold beer. Possibly dressed as a woman. Well, let's introduce the five crime families. Okay, so the five families are known as the Bonanno family, the mm-hmm. Colombo family, the Gambino family, the Genovese family, and the Lucchese family. And I tried to throw a little Italian on there yeah, at the end. I kind of, bu- kind of butchered it. Now, <laughs> these are the five major New York City organized crime families of the Italian-American mafia. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that some of the families have had different names from time to time, so I don't want to get any email saying I'm going to swim with the fishes because, because the Genovese family was once the Luciano family. I mean, yeah, and, and basically what happens here is you have a crime family mm-hmm. and then you have, let's say, cousins and brothers and stuff like that that are all working for this crime. And sometimes the cousin or a family friend 
becomes the leader, and then they change the name of the crime family. You're exactly right. So I mean no disrespect, but for the sake of argument and for the sake with the fishes, for the sake of this episode, let's just agree that those are the five families. Now I did say Luciano or Luciano family. That's a popular name and one that most people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. If you're not, Charles Lucky Luciano, he was once the boss of what more recently is referred to as the Genovese family and is pretty much considered the father for modern-day organized crime and splitting New York into the different criminal gangs. Lucky became the boss by secretly betraying his boss, and then Lucky ended up going to prison, and eventually he is deported to Italy and at some point loses the boss title. I wonder with New York having the five boroughs, and then we also have the five crime families. I wonder if there's any connection there. You're right. There is some connection there. And the five major families historically operated in the New York metropolitan area, but also having a big presence in New Jersey and also have and may still be, who knows, be active in South South Florida, Las Vegas, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and Massachusetts. So we got the five crime families, and sometimes they're just working independently. Sometimes they're working in clusters. And sometimes it's as a whole, and sometimes they're warring between each other. Maybe it's two against three or just one against one, you know, kind of a turf war battle. Yeah, that's a little bit of the background here, but we are not here to give a primer lesson on Italian-American organized crime. Yes, we are. <laughs> no, that's we, what... <laughs> we are here to discuss the conspiracy plot and cover-up to kill and silence mob boss and community leader Joseph Colombo. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know that most... What's what do you think is the most cover up, you know, like construction? Mm-hmm. So like you're in organized crime. What are you actually in? Oh, your front. Yeah, your front. What would your front be like? Waste management. Yours would be. Well, I, I used to have this guy that I su- suspected uh-huh. of knowing some people. And we'll get into that a little bit later. I'll tell you an interesting story. But one guy I knew, very suspect, was into antiques. Oh, he's an antiques dealer. Yeah, I could never find his store. Uh, and then the, another guy was a barista. He had a coffee shop, mm-hmm. but uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him later. The shooting of Colombo could have been carried out and organized by any number of groups. Was it the mob? Was this a hit by one of the other four crime families? Was mm-hmm. it the government and the CIA trying to take down a crime boss? Right. Or was it the FBI? Did J. Edgar Hoover try to silence the very voice that was calling for regulations and sanctions on his own bureau. As we all know, the FBI has been... Well, hold on, you're missing another... The other possibility is just a lone gunman. Well, of course. Somebody that Joe did wrong and just wanted revenge, and the revenge would happen in public. Yeah, and the to help us do so, we have asked Don Capria, who has very recently teamed up with Joe Colombo's eldest son, Anthony, to join us. Now, Anthony knew his father extremely well. He worked alongside his father with the Italian-American Civil Rights League. Mm-hmm. But Anthony has been silent for over 40 years and has recently decided to speak out about his life beside his father and his father's unsolved murder. And Don Capria wrote this great book, Columbo, The Unsolved Murder. Don is also going to talk to us about Joe Columbo's father. See, Joe Columbo's father was killed as well. Murdered mafia style and most likely a retaliation kill for a killing that Joe's father, Two-Gun Tony, carried out. You know, they called him Two-Gun Tony because he kept a thirty-eight caliber pistol in each of his two vest pockets. And one of the things that people believe that is evidence that this wasn't a mob killing was because this wasn't done in the typical hit style of the mob. Yep. Don is a New York native, so he knows Mm -hmm. the playing turf of this case. And of course he grew up hearing stories about the mafia families and the different crime bosses. So without further ado, an interview with Don Capria. Don, you are a writer, producer, and music video director. How did you get involved in writing a true crime book? So I had always been interested in in true crime, um, and especially the New York Five families. Um, So I had mentioned to a friend a while back in Brooklyn that I wanted to do a story on Joe Colombo. An actual, I wanted to do a screenplay on Joe Colombo. I had always found... The, from the five families, his story to be one of the most interesting because of how diverse he was as the leader of a family and also that there was so much 
so much a little bit of information, but so much more story out there that no one really knew about for his life. So um, pursuing the screenplay, I was kind of told, you know, this wouldn't be something that you can do, being that his five his five children are still alive. This would be something you would really need a family blessing to to touch upon. Um, and I I said fine, no problem. I had put it to bed, and then about a year later, that same friend had, had told me, hey, look, are you interested in doing something with the Columbo? Uh, story and I said of course so he said well a guy is going to be calling you they're working on the book now and they're looking for someone to do the adaptation for a screenplay I took a call with a gentleman that was like a liaison between the family and their agent Mickey Freiberg and when we were on the call talking he also let me know that they were probably looking for someone to do the book that something wasn't working out with the writer that they had on board and I think it was a timing thing so I went upstate and I met with Joe Colombo's oldest son, Anthony Colombo, his grandson, Anthony Colombo Jr., um, Ray, who was like the liaison of the family to the agent. And we sat at a diner and, and discussed what I knew about Joe Colombo's life, why I wanted to write this book, what my agenda was to, to the story and the telling of Joe Colombo. And, and they told me a little bit, a bit about what was not written and what was not in the media and what was not written in true crime books and we, we, it was a really great chemistry, and I had never intended to write a book. I always wanted to be a screenwriter, but when the opportunity arose and I, I sent in a, a little treatment to their agent and he accepted it, I decided I was going to take on my first true crime biography. Tell everybody about Joseph Colombo. Yeah, Joseph Colombo, um, you know, he died before I was born, and I, I did a lot of research on him from everything from the the media story of who Joe Colombo was, the the jacket of, of criminal history and, and investigation done by the FBI and the NYPD. But I think the most interesting stories, of course, came from the people that had firsthand experiences with him. Uh, the more and more that I met people that, that met Joe or had heard stories about Joe and, of course, working side-by-side side with Anthony, his oldest son, I, I learned that the man could have he was one of these gentlemen that could have been anything um and he did live and become successful in many different ways besides what you know the reputed mob boss story that everybody knew about him uh, as a businessman he was a deal maker and he was a deal maker that wanted to create win-win situations um as a community person he was a leader uh in his family he was a, a strong cohesive piece to have of course the head of his family but always making sure that everyone is included. And, and he's the type of person that when I, I met one guy in Brooklyn and I asked him, I said, you know, what is, what is Joe Colombo? Who is Joe Colombo to you as far as the, the community person? He said, Joe Colombo was the type of person that when a black man and, a, and an Asian man and a Russian guy and, an, and a Jewish guy and an Italian guy were having an argument over something, they would walk into a room with Joe Joe would sit him down. They'd come out of that room an hour later, and everyone would be laughing and patting each other on the back. And and to me, I just learned that no matter what Joe Colombo was in the media eye or to any person that wrote or spoke about him, he was just a, a, going to be a successful leader. And that's why I think he had uh, leaned over into politics and started the Italian-American Civil Rights League. He knew how to pave the way to a successful situation whether that situation was a business deal, whether that situation was a community organization. You know, he wanted to build a hospital. He was building a camp in upstate New York. To me, Joe Colombo was just a natural-born leader. We're talking about Joseph Colombo, the famous mob boss of the Colombo family. But when, when Joe was a kid, his father was murdered. Yes. So his father was uh, an immigrant who, while their roots are from Calabria and Italy, his father um, came by way of Brazil, which was very common during the heavy immigration of Italian-Americans to, from Italy to the Americas. So his father came over and grew up just with his father because his siblings did not make it because a lot of the people that were traveling on the boats got sick and were rejected at the New York ports. So um, he grew up as a street kid in, in South Brooklyn and eventually joined gangs and was known as Two Gun Tony, um, who was a member of what would be the Profaci organization. But I think this was even pre five families that he was involved in, you know, the bootlegging activity, the roaring twenties, 
And then in the 1930s, um, the, at the end of the Castle de Marese Wars, there was a huge power struggle that was happening in Brooklyn. And we all know the story of Sal Luciano and how he, with Meyer Lansky, devised the five families where these territories would finally be defined and leaders would be defined and the work would be defined. Um, and when that was happening, there was still someone in the streets of South Brooklyn, a, a very powerful uh, gangster, um, Frankie Yell's associate, and his his name was the clutching hand, Pirano. Um, and he would not settle. He would not do organize, organized crime like these men wanted to do where there was a politics involved. So the man had to be taken out. And from, from what I was told, um, he was walking home from a meeting one day where he had, he had left the meeting and told him the same thing. He was not going to give up property. He was not going to compromise. Um, and he was shot on Sackett Street in Brooklyn. And the coroner report on that shooting was that the first two bullets that entered his body, um, you could put a quarter over those first two bullets that entered his heart, meaning that the gun was fired and the second gun was fired and he hit the same spot twice, which is pretty rare when it comes to sharpshooting with a pistol. Um, that that murder, and from, from what I was told, again, is was, was done by two gun Tony, which would be Joe Colombo's father. And years later, when the Profaci organization came to, came to be, someone had to take responsibility for this lieutenant dying, and it was rumored that that's when they decided they had to kill Anthony Colombo, who was responsible for the shooting of Giuseppe Profaci. So he was slain um, with, with a girl that was someone that he was seeing on the side of his wife. And it was a very brutal murder. They, they um, in those days, uh, in the, the late 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, they were still doing um, stuff that they did when they came over. It was called like the barrel murders. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but where they would take a body and they would asphyxiate it by tying a rope from the legs to the head and the body would actually fold. And that's how um, Joe Colombo's father was found. And the photos were all over the newspaper. And it was something I'm sure was extremely difficult for Joe as a 14-year-old boy to have everyone that knows him know about his father's murder and have seen pictures of his father's body, the hand even laying out from the backseat of the car in the police photos that made it into the newspapers. And this was something that was a turning point for Joe Colombo because his, his mother at that time was so nervous about what was going on, decided to pack up and leave the state and go to California. And Joe at 14 years old did not want to leave the state. He wanted to stay in New York. And I think he wanted to stay in New York because he wanted to find out who was responsible for his father's murder. And was Anthony's mistress killed that day as well? She was. Yes. So his father and his father's mistress were both killed that day by strangulation. Both murders were done by strangulation. Uh, Christine Olivieri, who was married at the time as well, was the mistress. Um, and she was also strangled and left inside this uh, Pontiac. Um, it was called the Shore Road Murders in the newspaper. It was in the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. And it was a very, very foggy morning that those cars, it, it must have happened in the evening before, and a very foggy morning, the killer and accomplices took this Pontiac and drove it right off of Shore Road, parked it on the side of the street. And then when the fog cleared in the morning, the bodies were actually found by a, a little boy who was just walking his dog. And he saw these this two bodies in the backseat of this Pontiac and then called the superintendent of the building next door, the police, and there you had the crime scene. We're talking with true crime author Don Capria about Joseph Colombo, the mob boss, and his father has been killed when he was a boy. Now, his mother moves out to California, and Joseph stays behind in New York. Yes. And again, my belief is that Joe wanted to find out who was responsible for his father's murder. And I think that Joe also, angered, wanted to avenge his father. Um and there was a, a gentleman that was very close to his father that they lived around the corner from each other in Sheepshead Bay. And this gentleman went to Joe at his father's funeral and let him know that, listen, I'm a very dear friend of your father's. He was a mentor to me, and he was a, a very important person in my life. And I'm going to be watching over you. And if there's anything that you ever need, please come and see me. And Joe started developing a relationship with this man from the time he was 14 years old, uh, a mentorship, I would say. 
and um, you know, I can get into that later on and how that relationship grew. But I think that that person was also a pivotal person, kind of the tent pole for Joe saying, okay, well, my whole family's going to leave and go to California, but if I stay here, I have someone that I can turn to for money, job, or whatever it needs to survive in New York City. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. You'll always have new flavors to explore. 
Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Joseph Colombo, his father's been killed. His mother moves away. Now, Joseph has to become a man very quickly here. What does he do? Does he drop out of school? How does he fend for himself? He stays in school. He does not um, stay in school to complete uh, high school. He had switched schools because he needed a residency. So the mother's sister was living off of New Utrecht Ave, so more towards Bensonhurst. So he stays in school. Um, he was He had a shine box, and he was shining shoes. Um, and then he started learning how to roll dice and he started making money because he noticed that, well, the money doesn't come from rolling dice and having good luck. The money comes from running the games. So at a very early age, he was running crap games and he started learning hustles on the street and <clears throat> he got a job, um, working for a butcher. Uh, he got a job working bakery delivery. And then I think he started to notice um, from some of the older gentlemen in the neighborhood as well, that there was ways to have the job and also make a little bit of extra money by hitting up bakery deliveries and hitting up uh, meat deliveries and all these different kinds of things. So he, he learned hu- to hustle and, and uh, earn money at a very early age, you know, 14, 15 years old. And once he started to support himself, then that's when he was feeling like he could live on his own. And I think before he turned 18 years old, his mother moved back from California. Once the dust had settled and she felt things were safe, um, she decided that she would move back to New York. So he was living under her roof again by the time he was 17 or 18. So when does Joe Colombo become involved in organized crime and get involved with one of the famous five families? The organized crime stuff wasn't until much later in his life. I think <clears throat> the first thing that happened for him was he started, he started working at uh, Franklin Pocketbook Factory in Brooklyn, and he was about 17 or 18 years old when he got this job, and this job was where he met his future wife, uh, JoJo, and he also met some of his closest friends around this time that he had lifelong friends. Uh, he also learned to organize at this time where at this factory he he became a leader. This is, you know, where he started getting leadership role and, and people looked to him to settle disputes. And um, it was his first experience with union work. Uh, he also <clears throat> had an experience with uh, a commun- the Communist Party at this time. He was invited to a camp upstate from some of the union workers, which would be around Pauling, New York, I would say. And at this camp, they were recruiting uh, Italians and uh, Germans and other people that were immigrants in New York to join the Communist Party. And this was during the time of the war. Joe went up to the camp, checked out everything that they had to say and, you know, politely thanked them for letting him stay there and feeding him and giving him all this information to let him know that, you know, this was not something that was for him, that he was he was definitely on the other side of the, the political sphere and. Uh, when he came home, uh, Pearl Harbor had happened. And when Pearl Harbor happened, he felt that he needed to act. And he joined the, not the Navy, but he joined the Coast Guard. And he went to active duty right away. Um, he was on a few different ships. Um, he saw action off the coast of Casablanca, everywhere in between uh, France and North Africa. Um, a lot of action, actually. And 
during one of the trips, he got a message from his wife that their house on Sackett Street had burned down. Well, he, I'm sorry, she wasn't his wife yet. They were just engaged to be married. And he came back home, and he didn't have furlough, and he skipped furlough, and he went up into the mountains in New York with his best friend, his wife, and he got married. And with that, he went AWOL, and he was locked up and placed on Hearts Island. So he spent a lot of time um, incarcerated a few months, and then his wife got pregnant. Um, and he had his, he got married and he had his first son within a year. And that's when he started working on the Brooklyn docks. And I think when he started working on the Brooklyn docks, he was introduced to a lot of people in organized crime. As we all know, the docks were overrun with, with criminals and, and organized crime figures, you know, everyone from Albert Anastasia on down. So I think a lot of people respected Joe for who his father was. And they knew that his father was in the, an assassin for one of the gangs. And that gang, I think, took him under the wing, being the Profaci gang. And at the time that he was at the Brooklyn docks, so we're talking early 1940s, that was when he was probably first introduced to organized crime and started to see that he could be a leader within this community. In my research of Joe Colombo, there was a lot of talk about a kidnapping that uh, may have happened in 1961. Uh, and I hope I'm not jumping too far ahead here, but uh, maybe you could fill us in on that. Now, there was a lot of kidnapping going on during what the media and everyone spoke of as the Gallo-Profaci War. And what had happened, I think this all started in 1958 or 1959. Um, there was the whole the Gallo gang, which was a, a faction within the Profaci organization from President Street. And you had the, the Gallos, which was... Joe Gallo, Albert Gallo, and Larry Gallo. Larry Gallo, as I was told, was the leader of the organization. And beyond the Gallo gang, you, you had a lot of other people that were involved. One of them, um, Joe Jelly, who was you know infamous, infamously known as one of the toughest guys in the streets of Brooklyn at that time. Um, these guys were vying for power within the organization because, um, from what I was told, again, they were... Um, they were the tough guys that were handling a lot of business for Profaci in South Brooklyn. But it seemed that Profaci had such a grip on business that he would have them, you know, do different things, take care of scores, maybe take out people, but then not give them the piece of the pie that they felt entitled to. And crazy Joe Gallo, Joey the Blonde, as he was referred to in the street, was very rebellious. And I think with him and his brother Larry, who was the leader, he devised a plan that they could start kidnapping members of the Profaci organization and demands the money and whatever stake they felt was owed to them. So there was a few different people that were kidnapped in 1961, and it's been rumored that Joe Colombo was among those people, but he never was. Um, he actually just moved to upstate New York and made sure that he kept his family outside of the city while all this was happening, because beyond the kidnapping, there were some murders that were happening during the gallo Profaci war and and joe was smart enough to know that he didn't want to get in the middle of this situation and as i heard from folks joe was the, the influential person after Profaci had passed and after moglacchio who was the underboss who became the leader of the Profaci organization joe was the person who really cleaned up the war and made sure that everyone could be back together and it could be one family and that was the reason why in folklore, the Profaci organization doesn't even exist in the five families anymore. Matter of fact, the Colombo crime organization, as they call it, is the only crime organization that changed names and is still its name in the FBI. You know, if we talk about five families, Lucchese, Genovese, Bonanno, Gambino, Colombo, it didn't start off that way. It was actually the Profaci organization that became the Colombo organization. And I think this was due to the disdain that a lot of the Gallo faction people had towards the Profaci name, and they said, well, if we're going to make this an organization again, we'll never call ourselves Profaci members. So Joseph Colombo was never actually kidnapped. He just moved his family to kind of lay low, uh, especially with murder having been such a real thing for him, seeing his father, you know, knowing that his father was killed. Yeah, that, that's what I'm going to guess. Um, he, you know, while he moved the family, he bought a house in Blooming Grove, New York, and he actually started buying more and more property up there as his business was doing better. He still stayed in New York, in Brooklyn. Um, he was uh, 
working at Cantalupo Realty on 86th Street. So he still operated out of South Brooklyn, and I, I would want to say that there was probably even days that he was sleeping upstate and driving all the way back into the city for a full days of work, and then probably spending time with his family on the weekends up there and just keeping them mainly out of Brooklyn as much as possible. Not thinking that there was anything per se that um, would happen to his family because of what was going on. The, the, you know, the organized crime members were never known for that sort of behavior. So I think it was just something that with the media and the news and the people on the street, it was just, you know, there's so much dialogue going on about the streets that he felt it was better to just keep them removed from everything. Colombo was sent away to prison in the 60s. How much time did he do? Very small amount of time. Um, this was uh, this was always the, the, the piece of the puzzle that, you know, I worked closely with Anthony on where, you know, when I was writing this story, I wrote it with his oldest son. And Anthony had told me he has a father-son story to tell. And he only wants to tell this father-son story from the time that he was born until the time that his father was shot. And during that time, he never knew his father as an organized crime figure. Um, he only knew his father as the head of his household. And whatever was written about him in the papers and whatever he was arrested for, uh, even what he had gone to jail for, this was believable that Anthony would see his father just as the businessman he told him he was and not an organized crime figure. Because if you have uh, someone that arrests you and you beat the charge, or if you have someone that puts you in jail for not speaking to a committee or, you know, the one thing that he was convicted of for was um, sign, checking the wrong box on a real estate application. You know, you're looking, you look up to this man, you eat dinner with this man every day. You're going to believe you're, you're going to believe your father and you're not going to question him. So the, the time that he spent in jail was, was something that anyone could go to jail for, which was just contempt. Um, him and, and Larry Gallo, were seen together at a resort in the Catskills um, by a police officer. And just the police officer seeing um, Larry Gallo, and there was another gentleman who was also a convicted felon, uh, this allowed for a grand jury hearing back in New York City. Joe had to sit and speak at the grand jury hearing, and when you don't speak at the grand jury hearing, um, you're in contempt and they can put you in jail. So they ended up putting... Joe and Larry in jail together. And I, I think the sentence was only about 60 days for contempt. Um, but this was the only time that he served in, in jail. It was for something that, you know, you or I or anyone who doesn't want to speak during a grand jury hearing could be put in jail for. Let's talk about the Italian American Civil Rights League. Tell us what that is. And let's talk about Joe Colombo's involvement with that. Yes. Joe was always, a, a you know, he had a lot of pride um, for his Italian heritage and he loved the community in New York that he lived in and, and beyond. And he was, I don't want to know, say if he wasn't a member of AID, but he was a supporter of AID. I'm sure he was a supporter of the Sons of Italy. So he was not only proud, but he was also a strong supporter in the organizations that existed. Um, whenever he saw any kind of defamation, whenever he saw any kind of struggle, he was the, the type of person that would step up and, and fight. And something happened in 1970 to his son that had been um, boiling and boiling and waiting to explode, and it finally did. The FBI had been threatening him that if we can't catch you, we're going we're gonna to go after your family. You know, we'll get your kids. And they indicted his son on a coin melting case in April of 1971. When this happened, Joe went to these organizations and he said, look, it's, it's time for the, the Italian people to step up and fight the, the Justice Department. The Justice Department not only attacked him, but they had been known for going around in the community. And if you knew a criminal, if you were a relative of a criminal, they were shaking people down, you know, doing, robbing money from their homes, uh, threatening immigrants with deportation that wouldn't answer questions, um, walking into stores that were, you know, possibly owned by an organized crime figure and, you know, just, just complete disruption within the community to anyone that possibly knew or was involved with a criminal. And, and Joe had a disdain for this, and Joe wanted to fight for this, and he could not get the support of these organizations. So he decided at that moment, and with a, with a close friend, with Matt Marconi, 
that he was going to start the Italian-American Civil Rights League, is which it became, and he was going to combat the Justice Department. And beyond the Justice Department, he was going to start combating all things that he felt needed to be rectified within the Italian-American community. And a lot of people looked at this and just said, you know, well, he started this organization for the reasons of making money or – it was a very, very passionate and important part of, of Joe Colombo's life. I think, uh, in some respects, looking back at his life, I think he would have made a greater political leader than he would have a, a mob boss if he could have chose his life's path, you know, many, many years earlier. And maybe what had happened to him and his father never happened at all. You talked about how he got involved in organized crime, and we know he. You don't just start off being the boss of a crime family. How does Joe rise through the ranks? Well, there are stories, and you know, then there are stories that I heard. There are stories I've read. There are stories I've heard. Um, the, the ones that you've read, it was really that um, in South Brooklyn, until he was pretty much off the radar through the FBI. You know, I had his, his jacket and a lot of other people's um, FOIA files. And he was pretty much off the radar. I think a lot of the people in the Colombo organization were, maybe even all of the organizations, uh, until the Gallo-Perfacci war. And I think even then, they didn't know who was leading the family once the war had ended in 1963. Um, Post-1963, from, from all the stuff that I've read and from some of the people that I heard, Joe was a progressive thinker. Joe wanted uh, anyone that was involved in organized crime to be a businessman, to not be in the street and known as a criminal, not to be lazy, to be, you know, ambitious enough to open up a construction company, to have a real estate company, to own a flower shop, to have a car dealership, to have a restaurant. So he was, he was one of the youngest among, you know, all of these men that came from the prohibition era. Joe was, um, you know, he was about 20 years younger than, than all the leaders of the families at this time. And, and I think that he was the person that started to see that change needed to be as the Justice Department was gearing up to really go after organized crime figures. So as a leader, he was amongst those five families. He was the most different to me because he was trying to create change within how their structure was. Um, and, and I think that created attention not only with some of the street guys, but also with the leaders of these five families. And, uh, you know, as I, I was reading and learning more about Joe Colombo, like the dichotomy of his character was, uh, was, he was just so diverse. That was most, one of the most interesting things to me was that, you know, he was creating a resistance almost in, in every area of his life, uh, especially the, the organized crime area. Once Colombo takes over the family, what kind of leader is he? Is he loved? Is he hated? I would say that he was loved by by a lot of the the men that were in the organization. I know he was very very close with um, Carmine Persico. He was very close to, and a lot of people don't know, Larry Gallo. Um, everyone thinks of Gallo Colombo as this uh, riff that was forever, and this is just something wasn't true. Gallo was not only so close to Joe; he was at Anthony Colombo, his son's wedding, um, and. While Joe Gallo was not a fan of Joe Colombo, to say the least, um, his brother was, and, and they had a great relationship. And Larry was, you know, definitely one of the, the more powerful people in the Colombo organization. Um, and I, I think that Joe had the love and the support of people across organized crime families within New York. And this would be evident in when he started the league. Um, there were faces and there were people on those picket lines and there were people that were um, really helping Joe turn this league into a monster and a threat to the, to the Justice Department. That couldn't have happened if he wasn't a, a well-loved and respected leader in the organized crime world, not only just the, the community of New York, but also in the organized crime world. Because this is a man that, that went from starting the Italian-American Civil Rights League in April and picketing the FBI offices in New York City to putting 200,000 people a few months later in Columbus Circle for one of the biggest rallies New York had seen. So that can only come from being um, not just charismatic, but really well-loved inside the communities. 
Colombo and his league, they've organized picketing sessions and they've organized rallies. What are they rallying against? And we see here an example of such on the cover of your book. What are they trying to achieve? Yeah, starting with the the cover photo, um, that was a photo taken by a really amazing political photographer, uh, Robert D'Alessandro. And I had found, there's a little story behind that photo, if you don't mind. I had found a photo of Joe in a magazine that I, I needed to have inside the book. And it's, it's, a, it's just a photo of him at a rally with a young boy. And when I, um, when I found that photo and I found out who shot that photo, um, I somehow got in touch with this photographer who was living in Mexico at the time. And uh, he let me know, yeah, I still have an apartment in New York that I keep. And I, I go there one month out of the year. And I have some old photos, some stuff I never even developed. So I met this man a few months later at his apartment in Harlem, and he developed all this film, and that's where that cover photo came from. So um, <clears throat> a very interesting uh, photo. It, it has Joe squaring off with the police officer. They're near the FBI offices in Manhattan, and um, the person that's in the center of the photo behind him is Duke Santoro, and he's holding a sign that says, Are We Headed for a Police State? And that's why I feel this book was better told, you know, 40 years later as what Joe Colombo was thinking and what he was saying um, as a, a civil rights leader and also just as a community leader was to stand out and have some action against the government. Um, Joe Colombo did not believe in the practices of the FBI. He did not believe in the practices of the organized crime um, strike force, you know, the Justice Department as a whole, because he felt that they had to hold the respect and the law of what America said it was and the integrity of, of justice. And he knew that they were doing illegal activities to make arrests. He knew that they were robbing. He knew that the same men that were putting guys away for running numbers were gamblers, uh, booze, drugs, everything that, that he felt was right and wrong. He, he wanted to make sure that there was a line between the justice department and the street guys that were doing it. And, that type of forward thinking was what he wanted to fight against because he knew that they were just, you know, and we look at it today, you know, the illegal spying. If we look at um, Snowden and if we look at WikiLeaks, um, Joe never learned to know about this. But in 1971, I don't know if you're familiar with COINTELPRO, but that was outed in 1971 by a bunch of college students in Pennsylvania who broke into an FBI office. It was a very low security FBI office, but they managed to get a whole bunch of papers out uh, about Hoover's illegal organization within the FBI called COINTELPRO, which was short for Counterintelligence Program. And this program has documentation of, of illegal activities and even murder. They killed a Black Panther in Chicago. Um, and this is the kind of stuff that Joe had was privy that was going on. He didn't have facts or evidence, and he wanted to stop the FBI from being able to, without a warrant, bust in the people's doors, take money from their apartment and, and shake people down and, and you know, illegal wiretaps and, and all these different things that were happening. So the, are we headed for a police state sign? I, I felt like, wow, you know, this was in 1970. You know, how, how relevant is that right now and what the people are fighting for in the streets and protesting against big government? And Joe was a Republican. He was a conservative, I, I'm sure a libertarian. And, you know, he wanted to make sure that, the government remained where it was when this country started, where it was ruled by the people. And he started to see that Hoover and, and the Justice Department were doing exactly the opposite, and no one was trying to curb this. Some really interesting stuff that uh, Don is He's putting down some stuff, and I'm picking it up. Yeah, and we'll have to finish this in part two, which will come out tomorrow. Yeah, I'll try to edit it as soon as I can and, and release it as soon as I can because uh, we get a little more to dive into. A lot more to dive into. And, of course, our recommended reading for tonight is Columbo, The Unsolved Murder by Don Capria and mm-hmm. Anthony Columbo. Uh, I'm going to read a little caption that I found uh, regarding the book itself. You know, I'm not writing my own here. To the media and the FBI, Joe Colombo was the head of one of New York's infamous five families. Mm -hmm. To the Italian-American community, he was an organizer and a leader. To his family, he was a great husband and father. Who was responsible for Joe Colombo's death? 
And why have the efforts that Joe made for the Italian-American community gone unrecognized? All this stuff has weighed very heavily on Anthony Colombo for years, and he has finally decided to write a book to address who Joe Colombo really was and to address who should be held responsible for his death. The book is based on Anthony's personal life beside his father and his in-depth knowledge surrounding his shooting and the suspiciously flawed investigation into his death. So pick up Columbo, An Unsolved Murder by Don Capria and Anthony Columbo. You can pick that up at our website, truecrimegarage.com, and click on the recommended page. We will see you right here back in the garage tomorrow. So don't be late. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.